are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Thanks, Sherry. Well, today is our last normal Sunday in the season of Lent. This 40-day time frame, we've been making our way toward Easter weekend, and we are almost there. Next week, we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday, have some fun things planned. So we look forward to being here together next week. And then we're two weeks out till Easter. So we move right along. And we have been in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to stay in the Gospel of Matthew for Holy Week, but then move into the later chapters, of course. For most of Lent, we've been in these middle chapters of Matthew that I think have just been fascinating, looking at different kinds of passages. We're in Matthew 13 today, and for the first time in our series, now we're interacting with a parable. Jesus taught so often using parables, and these are those stories that Jesus would tell that would give us a picture of life in the kingdom of God. And we'll get back to that term, kingdom of God, in just a minute. But for now, we can just understand it to mean what it looks like to live in relationship with God. So Jesus is saying, here's what God is like. And here's what it looks like to follow him. And here's what it looks like to love other people that he puts into your life. And Jesus would tell stories to illustrate these things using metaphors and similes. So that's what a parable is. And in our passage today, we have two parables, just One verse long, and then the second one gets two verses. But that is all that's needed. The point is made, and it's made very vividly. So parable number one, it starts by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now, we'll pause here before we keep reading, just to talk about this term, kingdom of heaven. Because we run into it so often in the Gospels. It's going to be critical to know what that means to understand this parable. And really, it's an essential term when it comes to the message that Jesus preached. In Matthew 4, earlier in this gospel, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he's about 30 years old, he begins his public ministry, and it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You think of all the things that Jesus could have had as that first sermon, Or the most important message that he would give, of all things, it's this. Turn from sin because the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Now when we read in the other Gospels, the usual term that we'd see is kingdom of God. So Mark, Luke, John, they would all say kingdom of God. Why does Matthew change it to heaven? He's the only one who does this. Well, Matthew is writing for a distinctly Jewish audience. And as you might know, the Jewish people had concern about even saying the word God for fear of breaking one of the Ten Commandments and using God's name in vain. So they thought, well, we're just going to avoid saying it altogether, and that way we'll know we're doubly safe. Now, this extreme caution and this kind of idea was not commanded in Scripture, but it was kind of how they put a fence around the fence of the law. And so that's what Matthew does. He's writing to Jewish readers 
And so he takes kingdom of God and he subs in the word heaven to mean the same thing. And for the sake of clarity, I'll use them interchangeably today, but probably usually kingdom of God, that's the dominant term in the Gospels. That brings us, though, to the second question, and that is, what does this kingdom mean? And in particular, for you and I today, the word kingdom is not one that we are very familiar with. You know, I think of the Magic Kingdom, the United Kingdom, there's that Netflix series called Kingdom. That was about my list that I came up with. But the people of the Bible, they had this term right in their wheelhouse. So that by the time you get to the New Testament, Jesus can say, the kingdom of God is here, and people can instantly relate to what he's saying. They know he means the kingly rule, the sovereign reign of God. His kingdom means that it's his territory. He's in charge. I was on a flight once internationally that did a fuel stop in Saudi Arabia. That was not a U.S.-based airline. I don't think that they would do that. This airline just touched down for cheap fuel in Saudi Arabia. But the deal was this, and they had told us this, part of the protocol was that armed Saudi guards would board the plane and would walk the aisles to see if they saw anything that was out of line. Why did they get to do that? Well, because we were on Saudi territory and the king was in charge. So the kingdom of God here, Jesus says, it's here. This is God's territory. He's come. And probably the only thing that confused the people is how he prefaced it by saying in Matthew 4, repent. They thought, repent? Well, if the kingdom of God is here, wouldn't the command be to take up arms? To fight? Let's go? And Jesus says, repent. You know, they'd been ruled by the Romans long enough. They'd been waiting for this promised Savior, this Messiah, to come and lead the charge and restore God's kingdom to Israel, take back the throne of David. And Jesus is that promised Messiah in the Davidic line, but he's going to usher in God's kingdom in a totally different way than what they've expected. A way that the Old Testament foresaw and foretold, but the people just didn't understand. That the real problem wasn't Rome, it was the state of their relationship with God. The kingdom wasn't political. It was spiritual. The territory God was concerned with was not geographic boundaries. It was the human heart. You see the difference? It's the kind of kingdom Jesus is talking about. The kingdom arrives. Jesus is the Messiah King. But he's come to set people free from sin. And to restore their relationship with God. And so the kingdom of God then can be anywhere where people acknowledge that God is in charge now and he is the Lord of my life. So with that in mind, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. And now we can finish it off. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now the idea of treasure being hidden in a field was not as fictitious as it might sound. Keep in mind that Jesus is speaking in a time before the invention of modern banking, and your money was not in the form of bills in your wallet, but it was coins, metals, and jewelry. And so if you wanted to keep your life savings safe, 
then you would put it in a jar or a box and you'd bury it in the backyard or bury it out in the field. Particularly, think about it, if some marauding army is advancing on your little village or your country is being invaded by an army or there was civil unrest, then you'd get out there pretty fast and you would bury your money as fast as you could. And then it's not hard to imagine that if the owner person burying the money, does not survive that army coming into town, or even in peaceful times, simply the owner passing away and having not disclosed the location of that buried treasure. I mean, land could pass through ownership multiple times and nobody would even know that out in that field there is a buried box of treasure right underneath them the whole time. Until one day in the story, one of the hired hands, presumably, is out there working in the field, And his shovel makes the proverbial thud. You've seen like Treasure Island or any of those great shows. And he has hit something solid. And he says, huh, doesn't sound like a rock. And he keeps kind of testing it with the shovel. Thud, thud. He works his way along. Until finally, he decides he better investigate a little more thoroughly. And he starts to pull away the dirt. And pretty soon he can see that there's a wooden box that's buried there. And you can imagine his heart. Now it's going a little faster. He's probably up and seeing if there's any of the other farmhands who are around who have noticed. And so he quickly gets to work. And in the end, he unearths this old wooden chest. He opens the lid. And he has won the lottery. He looks inside this box and he knows he's never going to have to work another day in his life. He's just hit the jackpot. But first... He doesn't own it yet. He has got to figure out a way to keep this hidden and go and buy the field. Now, don't get caught up here in some kind of philosophical conversation with yourself about the ethics of this story. You know, you find a $100 bill on the floor of the YMCA gymnasium. What do you do? All right, that's not the point of a parable to think through all of those details. The secondary details are just there to support The main focus of the parable, which is about this treasure and the man finding it. But before we move on through to the man's response, I want us to pick up one more detail about the treasure in that first line, and that is that it is hidden. It's hidden. It takes us back to, I think, where we were a couple weeks ago in Matthew chapter 11. If you remember what we read there, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. The kingdom of God is hidden in the sense that not everybody will want to hear about it. That's what it means. How many people have walked across that field with the treasure right underneath and never recognized that it was there? But this man discovers it. How many people will hear the kingdom of God is here, it has arrived, but really not want to receive it? Jesus knew that to some it would remain hidden. He says earlier in chapter 11, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. There's a difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? The same is true for you and I today. You might be going about an ordinary every day at school or day at work. Just putting your shovel to the ground, one spade of dirt after another, going through your routine. And then out of nowhere, God 
seems to be getting your attention. Some of you can tell that story. What are you going to do? Are you ready to dig? Are you ready to hear and to look a little bit further? Are you willing to make this discovery? That's what happens to this man, and he immediately realizes that his whole life goal has just become about getting that treasure. So he buries it back up. He goes home. He sells everything he has to buy that field. And so just imagine, put yourself into his world in this story. He sells his car. He sells anything in his house that is not nailed down and has any kind of value. He sells his big TV. He sells his gaming system. He sells his furniture. He sells his lawnmower and his boat and all of his power tools. Anything that he can get rid of. He even puts his house on the market and it's sold in like two days. It's a seller's market, right? And when all is said and done, everything else that this guy owned is sold. And he has put together enough money as just a hired hand to go back and to buy that field from the guy who owns it. But here's what we need to see. I think this is critical. That this guy isn't the least bit sad about everything else that he had to get rid of. You notice that in the story? I mean, we might think, oh, parting with everything he has. I mean, that must have been painful. Yeah, worth it maybe, but painful. And that is not the message of the passage. It says he went out and did this with joy. Because he had found this hidden treasure. And I don't know how we get this so confused, but I'm speaking personally from experience that it's easy to do. And that is to think of God and Jesus and this church stuff as really rather ho-hum. Especially if you have grown up with some proximity to church. Somehow this can just slip in there. And this is all so ordinary. Like, sure, it's good for you, but, you know, it maybe is good for you in the sense that broccoli is good for you. And I'd really rather have Ben and Jerry's out of the freezer. Or another variation of how this can get so mixed up is that we can think that getting serious about our faith, like buckling down, I'm going to get serious about this stuff, that it means a lot of sourful sacrifice. You know, we have to sell our other stuff, and we do so knowing we should, but it's with a sigh and a doleful expression. But that's not what we see in this parable, is it? It's all joy. The treasure that he has found is so good and so valuable that any sacrifice he could have to make, it hardly even feels like sacrifice. There is no obligation here. David Wenham has a book called The Parables of Jesus, and he says, The revolution of God, that's how he describes the inbreaking of the kingdom. The revolution of God is not something gloomy that impoverishes people. It is something that enriches immeasurably and brings great joy. Joy in heaven, that means for all eternity in your future and right now on earth. And it makes me think of that famous C.S. Lewis line about mud pies. That we're fooling about when infinite joy is offered. Like a child, he says, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
We'll return to this in our application in just a little bit. But for now, let's add in the second parable, which makes the same point as the first, and yet has some nuances of its own. Parable number two, starting in verse 45. Again, so like the first parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Parable number two we have to do now with this jeweler who is on a business trip. Pearls were highly valued in the ancient world just as they still are in our time. It was, of course, before the invention of man-made or synthetic pearls. So divers would fish for them out of the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean and they would be fashioned into necklaces. And so they were this very conspicuous way of showing your wealth. Cleopatra of Egypt, one of my girls is writing a report on her right now, she had one single pearl that was worth 25 million denarii in their currency. So here's this pearl dealer, I guess, in the story, who's out on a trip looking for pearls. And that right there is one difference between these two stories. The guy in the field just happened to stumble upon this treasure, but the guy with the pearls is out looking for them. And both of these scenarios can happen in discovering the kingdom of God. Matthew 7 comes to mind here, that passage that says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And some of you could describe this search in your own life. You have found the current inventory of your life lacking. And so you have gone out on this kind of search, looking for what can satisfy and fulfill and last in ways that nothing else in your life has been able to do. You've been out there searching like this man in the story. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, the one who seeks finds. The merchant certainly does. He finds somewhere out there the biggest, most perfect, valuable pearl that he has ever set his eyes on. So much so, so valuable that like the first man, he goes home and he immediately sells, it says, everything that he has. Which I imagine is his whole stock of pearls and jewelry and the whole store that he has back home. Their combined value, he knows, could not even hold a candle to the singular pearl that he has just found. That's what it's like to find the kingdom of God. And what that means, let's remind ourselves, is to welcome his reign into my life, to receive him as Lord, and to say, Jesus, you are king over every corner of my life. In short, it is to want God to be God. The late Dallas Willard, I had the pleasure of listening to him in college and didn't even really recognize the name and know who I was listening to. But he has a book called Renovation of the Heart in which he says, the ultimately lost person is the person who cannot want God. Who cannot want God to be God. Multitudes of such people pass by every day and pass into eternity. The reason they do not find God is that they do not want Him. Or at least do not want Him to be God. 
Wanting God to be God is very different from wanting God to help me. I find that these parables, these two short stories we've looked at today, they really do test our true desire. Am I the man in the field? Am I the merchant who finds the pearl? Or am I just looking for the right amount of religion in my life? Not too much, not too extreme, but not too little. Just enough to call myself a good person and appease whatever God might exist. Or for others of us, these parables, they may put their thumb onto something else in our life. And that is a less than joyful sense of following Jesus. I'm not talking about some euphoria or some kind of spiritual high that you should be waking up to every day. That's not it at all. But there is this deep-seated, passionate joy that defines a genuine relationship with God. The knowledge that the treasure you have in Him is so good and so valuable that nothing else, no human comfort, no house that you own, no happiness you could have, could ever compare. Michael Wilkins, I told you about him. He was that Vietnam combat veteran who met Christ later in his life. He says, no sacrifice is too great to live in God's will and experience a discipleship relationship with Jesus as master. If a tough old Marine can say that, I can say that. I pray that you would know the joy that's described in this passage today. I pray across this gymnasium, as we do life together, as we spend some years together, that you would know that he's come, and he's come for you. To be king over your life. That he's made a way for you to come into his kingdom. Into the Father's house. To close, I want to summarize, I think, what we've described today in these parables and just ask you some questions to consider. Number one, I have three of these. Discovering Jesus' kingdom is exciting news that brings great joy. Don't come out of a sense of duty or obligation. I mean, if that's how you get here, then the Lord certainly can work with that. But don't stay there. The message of Jesus A lot of times at Christmas, we talk about good news. Uh, Just to catch your attention, I wanted to call it exciting news this morning. It's exciting news that you have to personally hear and receive. Like if someone called you later today and said, you know, some attorney's office and said, you have inherited a half a million dollars, I think that would probably get your attention. I mean, that's exciting news. The gospel is good news. Not like... Your hockey team happened to win last night. The Wild have been on a great streak. That's good news. Or the stock market is doing well. That's good news. But this is exciting news. And discovering it means pure joy. Do you have it? Have you discovered it? Number two. The value of Jesus' kingdom is greater than everything else. And I want to ask you, we could do this regardless of your age. You could think about, if I were to tally up my most valuable possessions, what would they be? 
And some of them would be material. You know, your car, your cabin, your phone, your name brand clothes, your distressed jeans. I don't know what your thing is. Some of them would be material. Your sports gear, your kids' braces, though you might not be as attached to that one. Lots of valuable stuff that you could list off. Some of it would be sentimental. It could be a family heirloom. Something that was given to you that has been passed down. It could be a collection. It could be a keepsake. And some of it would be immaterial, like relationships. Hard to put a price tag on those. But whatever you would put on your list, think about today. What would be my top ten? And then think about what's at the very top. Jesus says that there is only one thing on earth that can be your number one. And that's his kingdom. The value of items two through ten, whatever they may be, even the best things, cannot compare with that. And in fact, having that as your number one puts all the rest of them into perspective. Number three, the last of these takeaways this morning. Receiving Jesus' kingdom is worth any sacrifice you could make. This is hard. This is hard. There's so much that we could be tempted to hold on to. These parables say there's nothing worth holding on to that would be worth forfeiting what it means to follow Jesus. So is there something material or otherwise that is getting in your way of receiving Jesus? The guy in the field, the merchant with the pearl, they had to sell everything. There was no halfway commitment. It was everything. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And then what does he say? It's really items 2 through 10. He says, you know, everything else that you could need will be added unto you as well. Jesus is saying, if you seek first my kingdom, I will take care of the rest of anything you could need in your life. My brothers and sisters, this morning, it's a simple couple of stories. It's a simple message. And that is to declare that this Jesus is your king. That his kingdom has come. And he's in charge of your life. In short, discover it and treasure it because it's worth it. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, as we have looked at this passage together and I've looked out into the faces, the seen the eyes of my friends here, my brothers and sisters. Lord, I think we all have a sense of the weight of this message. There is something here, Lord, that demands a response. And Lord, whatever it looks like for each one of us this day to come in alignment with these things, to receive your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you'd give us the courage to do it. Where we have had counterfeit kings or skewed priorities. 
Lord, maybe where our shovel has thumped onto something worth investigating. I pray that you would lead us to action. Lord, on the cross, you have done all the work. And now here we are to receive a gift. And I pray that each one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, would come with open arms to receive. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.